Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes. Uh, today is Friday, February 2nd, and we are talking about Fallen Angels and Demons, Part 2. If you missed last week, you might feel in over your head at some point tonight. There's not much I'm going to be able to do other than to tell you to get on YouTube and go back and watch that video. So with that, we are going to start with some good news. The good news is the devil loses and we win. So God outlines this in Revelation chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the destiny of the devil will be the lake of fire and we will be there to watch him be thrown in. One day we will see the devil brought before the great white throne of God. He will be judged by God and cast into the lake of fire. On that day, the Bible actually tells us what our reaction will be when we see the devil. The Bible says we will be shocked when we see the devil. We will be in disbelief because the devil is so unimpressive. You ready for this? The devil is mediocre at best. He is uninspiring and our expectations will be disappointed. We read about this in Isaiah chapter 14 verses 15 through 17. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying, is this the man? that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. When we stand in the presence of God and then look over at the devil who is being dragged over to the lake of fire to be thrown in by some angel, we are going to be surprised by how weak and small the devil is. It's not like God is up here and the devil is just a little below. God is up here and the devil is so far down below that it is immeasurable. The devil is the pot formed by the clay. God is the creator. God first made the clay and then formed things out of it we are going to be amazed at the difference between God and the devil and how small he is. One of the devil's tools is trying to get us to believe that he is bigger and stronger and more powerful than he is. Now, compared to me, he's got a lot more power and tricks. But compared to the power within me, the devil has nothing. I have the Holy Spirit of God living in me. And Christians often forget that, and we can get discouraged. But we win in the end. And God is there with us every step of the way. No matter what we're going through, God is right there with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Okay, before we get any further into fallen angels and demons, we need to go over some physics and talk about hyperdimensions. The concept is simple. Don't be intimidated by the name. 
Here is Flatland. It is a two-dimensional universe. Just like the screen you're looking at. Just like the piece of paper that I'm reading from. There is a width and there is a height, but there is no depth. In Flatland live two creatures, Mr. and Mrs. Flat. They are two-dimensional beings living in Flatland. They can move around their two-dimensional universe, but they cannot enter our three-dimensional universe. They are limited. They are two-dimensional. We are three-dimensional. Now, if you imagine Flatland being this piece of paper, I could enter into their world. If I stuck my finger through their world, what would Mr. Flat see? He would see a circle. My finger going through his world would be represented by the cross-section of my finger. It would look like a circle. Now, I could stick three fingers into their world, and Mrs. Flat would see three circles. Both of them would see me a little differently. And technically, they would both be correct when they describe me to each other. They would also have a very limited view of Patrick Hayes. Imagine someone coming up to you and saying, Hey, I met Patrick Hayes today. He's a circle. Technically, they're correct. But that would be like you going to the Mercedes dealership and test driving a new S-Class for an hour and coming back and your friend said, hey, what was that car like? And you said, it's a cup holder. Well, technically that is a part of that. But you see how it is a severely limited view of what the machine is. So Mr. and Mrs. Flat can only experience me based on their two-dimensional universe and how I choose to reveal myself to them. In Flatland, they live on this two-dimensional plane. I can be above them. I can be below them. And they don't even know I'm there. They can't see me. They can't experience me in any way. This is how God interacts with us. God is outside of our three-dimensional universe. God can be above us, and he can be below us, and he can be all around us. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit, God, lives inside of us when we get saved. This is how he does it. How does God live inside of us? Simple. He is a multidimensional being. I'm going to help you with this. This is a cube. On the screen is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object. Now, I want to go through an exercise with you. We see how a two-dimensional plane works. We understand the third dimension, that's what we live in. And we can see a three-dimensional object represented on a two-dimensional plane. Okay, now everyone close your eyes for one minute. 
Now, I want you to imagine a four-dimensional cube. Can anyone do it? If you can, I'm going to ask you to come up here and draw one. We cannot enter into the fourth dimension just because we want to. We have no understanding of what it is, but we know it exists. Hyperspace is a space of more than three dimensions. That's all a hyperspace is. In 1908, the German mathematician Hermann Minkowski came up with the four-dimensional space-time. Three spatial dimensions and one unseeable dimension we call time. Einstein, in 1905, with his general theory of relativity, struggled to get past this problem that he ran into in physics. It wasn't until his successor added a fourth dimension, a fourth spatial dimension, that all of these problems were fixed. What I'm proposing is that angels and demons are multidimensional. We live in a 10-dimensional universe. Four dimensions are knowable and six are unknowable to us. Now, this is not my idea. Both astrophysicists and quantum physicists now tell us that we apparently live in a hyperspace of more than four dimensions. Ten is the current estimate. And of the ostensible ten dimensions we now know exist, only four are directly perceptible by our current technologies. The Hebrew sage known as Nachmanides, writing in the 13th century, concluded from his study of the book of Genesis that the universe has ten dimensions, but only four of them are knowable by man. Many millions of dollars have been spent on atomic accelerators only to learn what Nachmanides concluded from his study of the book of Genesis. It would seem that the domain of the elusive six dimensions is the realm of the trans-dimensional phenomenon such as angels, demons, and UFOs. For that matter, all paranormal and all supernatural occurrences, including miracles, occur in a dimension beyond that which we can see. On the screen here are two gentlemen, both astronomers. In the upper left corner is Jacques Vallée. He is a Frenchman. Don't hold that against him. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Paris and his PhD from Northwestern University. He is an astronomer and a computer scientist. In the lower right-hand corner is his contemporary, uh, J. Allen Hynek, who is an American astronomer who worked at the John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory and the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. They are two of the most venerated researchers of UFO phenomena. And I mentioned this before, I talk about this often, they both set out to study UFOs. They looked at every video, they looked at every picture, they interviewed every witness that they could find, and there was a percentage of them that were, uh, for lack of a better word, crazy people. The problem was there were so many legitimate sightings, so many sightings from Air Force pilots who receive an awful lot of training, people who monitored 
uh, air traffic controllers monitoring radar. And radars don't hallucinate. There were so many incidents that could not be explained away, they ended up both becoming true believers in UFOs. They set out to disprove the theory because they were astronomers and it was bugging them that there was so much buzz about this. Now, are you ready for this? Let me give you, let me give you an idea. The study of our three-dimensional universe. What's the study of our three-dimensional universe called? It's called science. Testable, observable data. Anything we want to talk about and call scientific, we need to be able to run a test on it, duplicate it in a lab, and it needs to be falsifiable. We need to be able to run a test and prove that it is not so. That's what we do with scientific theories. Well, guess what? Everything that God does is outside of our three dimensions. By definition, it is not scientific. What it is, is supernatural. That's the problem we get to with phenomena. We have to be able to study them and explain them somehow, but science ends in this three-dimensional box. So most scientists, when they look at anything that occurs in the supernatural, including UFOs, and by the way, just so I'm on the record, a UFO is not a little ship with a little green man from light years away from another planet. That is not what a UFO is. A UFO is an unidentified flying object. A UFO, by definition, we don't know what it is. If it was a flying saucer with a green man in it, it's no longer a UFO. It's not unidentified. We identified it. We know what it is. The problem is we see these things regularly, and we don't know what they are. They appear and disappear. They travel faster than the speed of sound, and there's no sonic boom. They travel so fast... Okay, hundreds and hundreds of miles an hour, thousands of miles an hour, and on a dime, they make a right-hand turn. In our three-dimensional universe, there is no structure that can do that. It would come apart. There is no way to do that. But in the supernatural, that's all possible. J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée independently wrote books about UFOs. They both believe that whatever a UFO is, it is hyperdimensional, and its goal is deceit. And when describing UFOs in their books, both of these men are atheists. Both of these men describe UFOs as demonic, their word. In conclusion, the angel, the fallen angel who lives in another dimension greater than ours has the ability to enter and exit our three dimensions at will. And we see that happen in the Bible. And the explanation is hyperdimension. They are hyperdimensional beings. A common mistake amongst Christians is thinking that fallen angels are demons. That is not true. We know this because every time demons are talked about in the Bible, they have very different attributes than angels and fallen angels. They have a different origin, mission, and destiny. They have a different title, and they have a different job. So where do demons come from? To answer that question, we're going to talk about a half a dozen different groups we run into in the Bible. We talked about all of them last week, and this is my current working theory. We're going to try to move through this quickly. First, we have the cherub. The cherub mentioned in the Bible many times, celestial beings. Three of them we know are archangels. The three that are mentioned in the Bible are 
Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Now, if you look on the screen, above that yellow line is heaven. Below that yellow line is earth. The three archangels, who are cherub, started in heaven. After the war in heaven, Lucifer was cast out and is now called the devil. One-third of the angels in heaven were cast out of heaven at the same time. We call these fallen angels. Now remember, two-thirds of the angels, twice as many, are still in heaven serving God. Then the devil came up with a plan to destroy humanity, and he needed some of his fallen angels to leave their first estate. Remember, it was a small percent of them that did this. Not all the fallen angels did this. A small group did this. This action gave them the ability to procreate with human women. So what exactly happened for them to gain this ability? Well, there are two verses in the New Testament that explain what happened. Let's read them both. In Jude, verses 6 and 7, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, we talked about this idea last week. I think these fallen angels took something off. They were no longer interdimensional beings. I'm going to go down a rabbit trail real quick. Okay, this is just, this is, yeah, this is free. Okay. When we go back to the book of Genesis, to the original creation, and we read about chapter 3, we find that when Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden something changed. They all of a sudden noticed they were naked and they wanted to cover themselves. Do you want to know what changed? Adam and Eve started out as interdimensional beings. And when they sinned, they lost that. And now they're in our three-dimensional world. And now they're clothed with flesh. I believe Adam and Eve originally were clothed with light. Okay, I'm not going to go any further than that. I'm just going to throw that out there and hope that you all lose sleep this weekend thinking about that. But go back and read that story. You find out it doesn't make sense that all of a sudden everything changed in their life. And guess what else they were no longer able to do? They were no longer able to commune with God. Remember, God used to walk in the garden in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. That was his ritual every day. And then he came to the garden and he knew something was wrong. I'll go you one better. When Eve ate of the fruit and sinned, that's when she fell. Adam immediately knew something was very wrong. Adam loved Eve so much that he ate the fruit anyhow. All right, I'm just going to leave that there. But you see, the angels disrobe. They take something off. That's what happened with Adam and Eve, not voluntarily. What happens when we die? We put something on. So these fallen angels who took something off were no longer interdimensional beings. They were now robed in flesh. Now, you want to know what's funny? So many Christians argue about this, and they're like, no, that's impossible. That couldn't happen. Oh, that's nonsense. What happened with Jesus? God put on flesh. 
and became a man. We don't struggle with that. John 1.14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The mechanics of it we accept in one instance, but we struggle to think about it in another. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, by the way, tabernacle is a temporary dwelling. Okay, this is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our heavens are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. When the Christian dies, they put something on. The Bible says we will be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. At that point, we will then be one of those interdimensional beings we are talking about. And guess what? Guess what cannot stand in the presence of God? Sin and our flesh. That's why Adam and Eve had a problem after the sin. They had to leave the garden. We, after we die, we put on our new, eternal, everlasting body. We get an upgrade. Hardware and software upgrade. Whatever the thing is that we will put on one day, that is the same thing that the fallen angels took off. Another thing we should notice is that these fallen angels who left their first estate are now mortal. These fallen angels that left their first estate, what happens when they die? Jude 6 and 7 tells us they go to everlasting chains under darkness awaiting the great day of judgment. So back to our fallen angels. What do these fallen angels who leave their first estate do? They find them some women. They find themselves human women. And when you read Genesis chapter 6, what you find is that the first union between fallen angels and women was not consensual. They took them women, is what the Bible says. Those are the words it uses. Now, after, all of a sudden, what was produced was so desirable that all of humanity was lining up. We want some of those for kids. So what happens? The human women and the fallen angels procreate, and they produce Nephilim. Now understand, not only were they massive, the Bible calls them giants, there is good reason, we covered that last week, they also were unbelievably intelligent. They also had a direct line to the other fallen angels and the prince of darkness. These Nephilim, you have to remember, they were rulers of nations. They were wealthy. They had abilities that nobody else had. Everyone fell in line and wanted them to be their leaders. Well, what do you think happened with all of the other human men and women on the earth? They all got together and they said, you know what? We want our kids to be one of those. That's what happened. Now, do the Nephilim have a soul? Are the Nephilim sinners who need a savior? What happens to the Nephilim when they die? They become demons. That's where demons come from. Demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. Now let's look at the attributes and the powers of angels. Does anyone understand that picture and get the joke? 
anyone see the Jimmy Stewart movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life? There was an angel in the movie? That's the actor that played the angel? Whatever. Okay, the first thing we need to recognize is that angels always appear as human. So much so that we read last week in Hebrews that angels are mistaken as people throughout the entire Bible. When an angel appears to Hagar in Genesis chapter 6, she doesn't recognize it's an angel. To Lot in Genesis 19, he doesn't recognize their angels. To Gideon in Judges 6, doesn't know their angels. And to the mother of Samson in Judges 13, doesn't know it's an angel. Also, in the New Testament, at the resurrection and at the ascension of Christ, they didn't know they were angels. Now they found out they were angels because all of a sudden they did something that was supernatural and everyone's like, oh, it's an angel. But until they allowed everyone to know, they were recognized as human. In these stories, it all describes the person's shock after the initial meet when they learned they were angels. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes angels are immediately recognized as angels because they appear in the sky or they appear floating down from the sky or they appeared sending down fire from heaven. My point is, without the supernatural miracle going on or them appearing or disappearing, every time an angel is seen in the Bible, they think they're human. That's the point. The abilities of angels. Angels can appear and disappear at will. We see them speaking a variety of languages. They are physical in the fact that they can touch humans, they can move humans, they can grab us by the hand and drag us out of a city. Okay, they eat meals, and they are capable of direct physical combat, and they are used by God for supernatural miracles. Everywhere we encounter demons in the Bible, they are entirely different from angels. To lump fallen angels and demons together is sloppy eschatology at best. The Bible doesn't support the idea anywhere. Okay, attributes and powers of demons. Demons are purely spiritual beings. While angels always appear as human, demons are the disembodied spirits seeking embodiment. Matthew 18, 16, Mark 9, 25, Luke 8, 2. They are always spirits, and they are looking for something to glob onto or in. Again and again, we read about how Jesus casts out spirits. The word demon and evil spirit is used interchangeably throughout the Gospels. Okay, number two, demons know who Jesus is. We read about this in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, and there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Every demon knows who Jesus is. And that's going to be important for next week when we start to learn about how Christians deal with demons. Number three, demons know their destiny. There's not a demon on earth that doesn't know where they are going to go in the end. That is why they are fighting for dear life. I know the battle sounds futile, but that's what they're trying to do. We read about this in Matthew 8, verses 28 and 29. 
And when he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. Verse 29, And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Did you catch that at the end there? Before the time? What time are these demons talking about? Many of the demons are thousands of years old. They know their fate. They not only know what's going to happen, they know when it's going to happen. Now, I'm not saying they know the day and the hour that the rapture is going to come. Jesus says no man knows that. I don't believe the demons know that. Jesus said he didn't even know that. He said only God the Father knows that, and he's going to tell me one day, and then I'm going to come back down, and I'm going to get you. The demons don't know the day that the rapture is going to come, but guess what? The demons know the signs of the times better than any biblical scholar does. They know what has to happen first, and they know how close it is. And they admit to Jesus, they say, are you here to torment us before the appointed time? They're saying, Jesus, we know you're early. So what's going on? Point number four, demons need a host. Now we're going to hang out here for a bit. Nobody knows what a demon looks like because they are never physically manifest in the Bible. We don't find them in Scripture physically manifested in any way that we are able to discern as far as what they look like. Demons, we find in the Bible, are like parasites. They are either in or around something. So let's start with people. We will get into this more in detail as we go, but let's just start somewhere. What does the demon do? What can they do? And how do they affect people? We have two ways that demons affect people. We have possession versus oppression. So possession is when a demon controls your actions and your speech. You are the puppet. They are the puppet master. You do not know when this is going on. You do not know what you are doing. When the demon allows you to come back and gain control of your body, you don't know what you did. It's like a blackout drunk. Wait, what did I do? Not that I know what that's like. I said that for some of you. Okay, then we have oppression. Oppression is what you and I experience daily. Demons are trying to make our life difficult. Now, difficult's not really a serious enough or sinister enough word, but you understand the idea. So for the Christian, their goal is to make the Christian ineffectual. Any possible way they can get you to stop being a good Christian, that is the devil working on you. Now understand, there are other things at work. The Bible says that we have the lust of our flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are things that attack us. So understand that once the devil can get us going down a bad road, they, it's kind of on cruise control. We'll keep messing up without the intervention of a power greater than ourselves. 
Okay, without God and the Holy Spirit involved, we typically don't get back on track. But the devil's goal is to get the Christian to be ineffectual. Anything he can do to make sure you don't share with another person anything about Jesus or the Bible or church or Christianity in general, he's thrilled. That's, that's what the devil wants to do for the Christian. For the non-Christian, demonic oppression will keep them away from Jesus, from church, from the Bible, from Christians. The demons do not want them finding out the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. For verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The devil does not want those words spoken to non-believers. Then we have what I call general demonic oppression. This is for anybody and everybody. The goal for both the saved and the lost is to keep them bound in sin that destroys their life. The devil is thrilled when he can get us going after sin. It always keeps us from God. It always brings us down. It is the struggle that all of us are, are, are going through. Paul talks about it in Romans. He calls it a war between the flesh and the spirit. Demonic possession is explained in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fear, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? So in these two verses, we read that these men were possessed. These demons were inside the men. And these demons inside the men, not the men, spoke to Jesus. These demons were in control of these men. Demonic oppression is most clearly explained in Genesis 3, when the serpent showed up to tempt Eve. Demonic oppression, again, is seen in Matthew 4, when they showed up to tempt Jesus. And in Acts 5, Ananias was tempted to lie. More often than not, the devil and his demons subject us to temptation to try to get us to sin. I'm just going to go ahead and confess here, okay? Your pastor is a sinner. Yep. So the sin meter goes up and down. You have better days where the sin meter is real low. You have worse days where the sin meter gets high, okay? Now, every single one of us can relate to this because when our sin meter is high, when it's running in the red, we just don't feel like going to church. We don't feel like being spiritual. We don't feel like being kind or sweet or patient or loving. We dead sure don't feel like praying for our enemies. Okay, we don't feel like reading the Bible. We don't feel like praying. We don't feel like doing any of the things that God tells us we should do that's good for us. Now, I'm going to give you another one. You ready? You want to know what sin and spirituality is just like? It's just like depression. If you've ever suffered from depression, you know that your depression tells you not to do everything that will help you get out of your depression. Your depression never says, hey, get up early tomorrow and work out. Depression doesn't say that. Depression says stay in bed. Sin does the same thing. Sin 
tells you, oh, no, 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 don't do any of those good spiritual things. Sin makes you feel like you don't want to do anything spiritual. Sin wants to keep you in sin. Depression wants to keep you in depression. We also see the Gospels full of examples of people who are mentally and physically impaired due to demons. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Every time someone is sick, it doesn't mean they're a demon-possessed. Every time someone is physically impaired, it doesn't mean they're demon-possessed. And at the same time, we cannot say that the sick and physically impaired have no spiritual malady whatsoever. We're going to find both cases on this spectrum. But in the New Testament, we certainly see those who are mentally and physically impaired due to demons. Those are all examples of demonic oppression. Back to point number four, demons need a host. The host does not need to be human. In Matthew 8, we see that the demons that were being cast out of the two demon-possessed men they ask if they can go into a herd of pigs. You see, demons are attracted to certain objects and even certain geographical regions. We need to talk about idolatry and demons. There is a link between idols and demons, and the Bible talks about this a lot. We're going to start in Psalm chapter 96, verse 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Demons are associated with idols. I will go so far as to say every single idol has a demon associated with it. This is why not only the entire world, but especially the Christian, should rid their lives of idols. I have been fiercely against idolatry. I have been fiercely against idols in the life of the Christian for decades. And believe it or not, it is Christians that regularly argue this point with me, saying, oh, Patrick, you know, this cute little statue of Buddha that I have, or this trinket, or this doodad that, you know, the Bible clearly describes as an idol. It's no big deal. Oh, really? Why not? Well, I don't actually bow down and pray to the thing and worship it, so it's not a big deal if I have it in my life. That has to be the dumbest idea in all of Christianity. If you just reverse engineer that idea. So what they're saying is there are two parts to idolatry. And when we read through the Ten Commandments, we see very clearly there are two parts. Number one, the Bible says we're not supposed to have any of these idols. And number two, the Bible says we're not supposed to bow down and worship idols. So don't make any idols. Don't have any idols. Don't bow down and worship any idols. Now, Christians are constantly telling me like, oh, this thing's not a big deal because... I don't worship it and bow down to it. Now, I do have it. I either bought it or is given to me or, or whatever. You could have made it and carved it and hewn it out of stone yourself. I have the thing, and it's in my house. It's in my car. It's wherever it is. I have this idol. But, Patrick, I don't bow down and pray to it, so therefore it's not a big deal. Morons! Let's talk about it from the other point of view. Are you saying that if you don't make it, don't buy it, don't possess it, you don't have it, is it okay if you do worship it and pray to it and bow down to it? See, there are two parts to that second commandment. 
Obviously, it's not okay if you go on vacation to some foreign land and there are idols in different places and you see the idol and you're like, oh, that's pretty neat. I think I'm going to pray to that. I think I'm going to worship that. I think I'm going to bow down to that. No, I'm not going to buy one. I'm not going to make one myself. I'm not going to have it in my home. I'm just okay praying to it. Morons. People don't seem to recognize there are demons attached to those idols. As Christians, we should not have idols in our home. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17, we read, They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up whom your fathers feared not. People, they do pray and they do worship idols. They don't realize that when they're doing that, they are actually praying to demons and not to other gods. Paul makes this clear, this same point in the New Testament talking about the Greek pagans. 1 Corinthians chapter 20, But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Idols are not just trinkets. They are dangerous and they must be destroyed. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we read about the destruction of idols as a good thing. We even read about how we are commanded to destroy idols. I literally just read this, I think it was yesterday, with the kids sitting around the dining room table in the morning. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25. The graven images of their gods shall ye burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them. So if the idol is valuable, don't even take the precious metals off of it and then burn it. Just destroy it. Burn the whole thing. In the next verse, neither shalt thou bring an abomination into thine house, lest thou be a cursed thing like it. We are not supposed to have idols in any way, shape, or form in our life because there are demons attached to them. Now, in the Old Testament, we read a great story about this. We find it in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. It is the story of the young king, Josiah. Josiah was a king of the southern kingdom. His father, and I believe even his grandfather, were very wicked kings in the nation of Israel, and they all but wanted Judaism snuffed out and eradicated from the land. And the way the Bible reads is that the law of the Lord was pretty much lost, and we, we haven't even heard about it. We didn't know what it was. And what happens is the, the temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, had fallen into disrepair. And it was time to renovate the temple, and, and they were hiring people to fix up the temple and clean it out. And, and uh, one of the servants of the king, Shaphan the scribe, found the law of Moses, this scroll. What it sounds like it, is it was tucked away in a broom closet behind some clutter. 
and he brings it out and he says, oh, I know what this is. This is the law of Moses. Uh, the king should see this. And he brings it to the king and the king asks that it be read to him. And the, the, the young king who has grown up now and is a young man sits there and hears the law of Moses read to him and he is in shock and disbelief at how far they have wandered away from the law of Moses. And what he does is he goes on a rampage to get the country, to get the nation of Israel right with God. And he starts by destroying all the idols in the land. Josiah goes on a rampage where he starts going through the land of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he starts destroying altars and idols and killing the pagan priests and just getting things right with God. And we pick this up in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 4. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on high above them he cut down and the groves and the carved images and the molten images he break in pieces and made dust of them and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed onto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon the altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. So just so you know, burning the bones was a way of desecrating the remains of the dead. And that's why they did that and then used that in order to desecrate the holy places of the pagans. Verse 6, And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim, Simeon, even unto Naphtali with their mattocks round about. Verse 7, and when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. So God praised Josiah as one of the greatest kings of all time because of these actions. God went so far as to say, now there was a time coming when God said, you guys have been wicked and I am going to come in there and I'm going to use the Babylonian empire and I'm going to take you captive and I'm going to bring you to a foreign land and you're going to be slaves for 70 years because of your wickedness. God comes to Josiah and says, because of you, I will not do this in this generation. I will put it off. That's how impressed God was with how Josiah turned to God with his whole heart. In the New Testament, we see this idea again surrounding items, not just idols. Acts 19, verses 18 through 20. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought forth their books and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. When Paul was outside of Ephesus and he preached the word of God, many got saved and they were encouraged and came under the conviction of God, but were encouraged by the apostles to take all of their books about paganism and witchcraft and they burned them. You see, demons are not just parasites hanging around people. They hang around inanimate objects as well. These objects must be destroyed, so the demons must move on. 
we are encouraged to destroy anything with pagan roots, pagan origins, anything pagan and, and wicked, idolatrous, anything to do with witchcraft, all of these things, we are encouraged to destroy them, both in the Old and in the New Testament. Now, demons, demons prevail where the gospel is absent. There are geographical regions where we find demons. In these geographical regions, they can be as small as a building, or a neighborhood, or a city, and they can be as large as a nation. Demonization over regions, nations, cities, ethnic groups, and families is in the Bible. Now, just to go off notes here and tell you, give you an idea, we in America have been one of the more godly countries on earth in many, many years. Our founding was wholly Christian. There is no way around that. Even those who are agnostic and atheist encouraged us to be Christian. Because of this, the gospel has been free to spread throughout America for over two centuries. And we have seen much less in the way of demonic possession and oppression. But it's coming. And if you talk to missionaries in foreign lands, you will find that these occurrences happen regularly. If you go to lands where Christianity has been expelled from the land, you go to lands where the Bible is illegal under penalty of death, and yes, they exist today still in the world. You go to places where Christians are rounded up and killed, and it still happens. Those countries see a lot more of this going on because the power of the gospel is not there. Their country has not been saturated in the gospel. You go to countries like Haiti, like India, like China, there are many countries where you will find demonic oppression and demonic possession all over the place. You just have to talk to missionaries that are in those places. And if you think it doesn't exist, just wait a little while. Because as Christianity is continued in this country to be talked down at and to be discouraged, our shores will be flooded with demons. Do you know the idea behind, and we're going to get into geopolitical politics here, so you know everyone just act like a grown-up for a second. Do you understand America's State Department and our position as far as trying to have free, democratic, financially successful countries in the world? Do you know why we want some form of free elections and free market economy to be in every country. Do you know why? Because when countries are successful like that, terrorists don't come in and set up training camps and produce the next generation of terrorists. Because everyone that lives in that country with a free market economy and a Burger King, and all of a sudden the, the women can 
have bank accounts and the children can go off to higher education and college and there are jobs for everyone and there's security, okay, because, you know, bad guys are prosecuted. Guess what? Those people don't want to lose that. No matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their culture, no matter what their religion, they don't want that to go away. Every single person in the world wants penicillin. And it doesn't exist without electricity. Doesn't happen. It's got to be refrigerated. My point is, America, as soon as a country goes into civil war, we show up there with aircraft carriers and troops to try to stop it. Because the second a country devolves into chaos, guess who comes right in? The bad guys. And they move in, and they set up shop, and they set up training camps. That's what happened in Afghanistan when the Afghanis fought off the Russians back in the 80s, in the early 90s, okay, which we supported. We didn't go in after them and build roads and build schools and get them clean drinking water. Well, guess who did come in? Yep, Arab Muslims. Telling everyone that you have to believe the way we do or, we get, or we're going to cut your head off in public. And then training camps showed up for really bad guys because they didn't have any resistance. And they've been doing that around the world. I mean, they've been doing that for centuries and centuries. That's how the world works. Guess what? It's how the demons work. When there is a nation of darkness because there is no gospel, there is no Jesus, there is no Bible, guess what fills the lands? Voodoo, paganism, witchcraft. These things move in. And they are coming to America. They're going to be here more and more and more often. Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. There is the demonization of geographical regions. We learn this from Jesus. He's the prince of this world. Paul called him the prince of the power of the air. He called him the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. Regional demonization can be found in the book of Daniel, who was opposed by the prince of Persia. There is an ethnic group, a nation led by a king that has wholly been oppressed by demons. I believe this verse talk in Daniel means an evil spiritual entity was over the Persian nation, race, and land. Does anyone know who the Persians are today? Persia is Iran. I think the demonic influence has been there the whole time. Anyone ever hear talk with your spouse and say, hey, where do you want to go on vacation this year? Anyone ever think of Iran? Anyone? No? There's a reason. We read about demonic influence over earthly kingdoms in Isaiah concerning the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel concerning the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. Now I'm going to give you something here. This, this, you've, this verse I'm going to read, you've read it a thousand times. You've never noticed this. In Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, we read about where Scripture explains this geographical component 
of demons. And they came over onto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I assure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. That's what Jesus said. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, the, the evil spirit answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Jesus was casting an evil spirit out of a man named Legion, and there were many evil spirits in this man. And the evil spirit had one request. He knew it was Jesus. He knew he was going to be cast out of this man. He didn't put up a fight. He knew it was coming. He had one request. What was his request? Please don't cast me out of this country. Hmm. When the demons were to be cast out, they said, don't cast me out of this country. Now, by country, they didn't mean the nation of Israel, okay? In, you know, the, the, the word country here in the Bible is synonymous with what we would call a region. Anyone want to guess what is special about that region in Israel? It was the region of the Gadarenes, if that helps. Over a thousand years ago, Joshua was tasked with going throughout Canaan land and expelling all the inhabitants. And to Deuteronomy, Moses says, I'm going to die. I don't get to go in the promised land. You're going to go into the promised land. And Joshua is going to take over. And you're going to go through the land and you're going to kick out the inhabitants. And that was the book of Joshua. A lot of wars fought. Joshua stopped short in three areas. Today, we call these areas the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. Three areas where the giants, which we call the Nephilim, were not killed off. The Gadarenes mentioned in Mark 5 is the Golan Heights. It is marked in yellow on the map above. The last thing I want you to see is that Satan is in charge down here on earth. He has a throne. He has a headquarters here on earth. And the fallen angels and the demons report to him. And there is a plan to destroy you. And we need to take that plan seriously. Now when the apostle John was about 100 years old, he was living on an island in modern day Greece called Patmos. And when he was there, he received a vision from the Lord Jesus that we call the book of Revelation. And the book starts out with Jesus writing seven letters to churches that existed at the time. They were real churches at the time. And Jesus essentially hands each one of these churches a report card. You are doing well in this area. You are failing in this area. Now, two of the seven churches that Jesus gave a report card to, he had nothing bad to say about them. Only good things, only complimentary, nothing bad to say. Two of the other churches, he didn't have anything good to say. It was nothing but complaints. You're failing here and here and here, and these are the things you're doing wrong. Now, in that list of seven churches, the third church Jesus wrote to 
was the church at Pergamos. And we read about Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So Jesus said that the city of Pergamos was where Satan dwells. He also said that Satan has a seat, okay, which we would call a throne, and it is in the city of Pergamos. Now, why is Pergamos important? Anyone know historically anything about Pergamos? Pergamos is the center of emperor worship. The Roman emperor was worshipped as a god. Historically, it's called the imperial cult, starting with Caesar Augustus. Technically, it was starting with Julius Caesar, but he was not called a god until after his death, so he really never got to reap any of the benefits. A temple was erected in Pergamos by Emperor Trajan for emperor worship. And it was the law of the land in all of Rome that every group in Rome needed to send a representative to Pergamos and toss in a pinch of incense into the fire, demonstrating their allegiance to the imperial cult and emperor worship. There was a temple set up to whatever emperor was reigning at the time who was considered a god, and there was a magistrate there who recorded your group, where you were from, who you were representing, and they had a little plate full of incense. You just had to take a little pinch, throw it in the fire, mark me down as good. I'm going home. That's all you had to do. Just a pinch of incense. Problem was, you were burning incense to an idol, to a pagan god. Well, guess what? There's a group that wouldn't do it. The Christians would not burn incense to this god and they were killed for it. When the Romans invited them to place Jesus in the pantheon beside Jupiter and Neptune and Isis and Osiris, they said, no, Jesus is God and he is God alone. And they killed them for it. There are only two groups on record that never threw incense in to worship the emperor. The second group was the Christians, and they didn't put up with it, and they killed them. The first group was the Jews. And in all of Rome, there was one exception. In the entire empire of Rome, they said the Jews are exempt from doing this because their experience with the Jews was that they would rather die than disobey their God and the Romans did not want to wholly eradicate a group of people that were peaceful so long as you didn't push them to be idolatrous. It's written down. It's a record. 
we have the paper that says the Jews are exempt from this. But the Christians weren't. The Christians were thought of as a new sect. And they said, yep, you guys got to come to Rome. And they said, we're not. And they killed him for it. So this concludes night number two. We're going to get together one more time to talk about fallen angels and demons. We're going to focus on the ministry of Jesus and what the Christian can do about demons in the world today. Because believe it or not, we all have a ministry when it comes to fallen angels and demons.